Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer and my guest this week is Janet Suspin. And we're recording in the home of some friends here in Fairfield, Iowa. Uh, so we have a small audience, including a dog who will probably sleep through the whole thing. Um, and uh, Janet, I don't think you know much about this show, and I don't know much about you, so let me just introduce what the show is about, and uh, then we'll, we'll start to you know, get into your story, which I'm told is very fascinating. Um, I just, uh, about a year ago I had the idea to do a show in which I interviewed people who had had a spiritual awakening. And uh, I've done about 46 of them now, and everybody's story is different, although there are often fundamental similarities, you know, from, from one person to the next. And it's, it's fascinating to sort of see how consciousness awakens or how awakenings occur in a variety of people. And uh, the value of this, I think, is that it, it shows people who watch it uh, that it doesn't necessarily all have to fit into one particular mold. Um, there are many ways in which awakening can occur, so that if they have been sort of stuck on a particular concept of what it's going to be, and feeling that they were a million miles away from it because that concept didn't seem to jibe with their experience, you know, hearing the story of a variety of people might just make them realize that there's something in their experience right now which is actually what they've been looking for, <laughs> and uh, which might enable them to awaken to that. And in fact, there actually have been some awakenings as a result of this show, people watching it and sort of, you know, having it trigger something um, and, uh, you know, and facilitating a shift. Um, and here in Fairfield, Iowa, of course, we live in a town where several thousand people have been meditating for decades. And, um, you know, and I, I think a lot of awakenings are occurring here, but there are also people um, whom I, who I was alluding to a minute ago who feel that who've glorified the idea of enlightenment to such an extent that they feel that they're just, that it's almost unreachable. They've given up on any hope of it in this lifetime. I've actually talked to people who say that. It's like, oh well, you know, it's, it's not going to happen for me because I can't possibly be like so-and-so who is, is my ideal of what enlightenment is. And therefore I think I'll just settle for, you know, meditating and playing golf and you know, that'll get me through this lifetime, and, and someday it'll, it'll, I'll reach it. And uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a fate a person has to accept. So, in any case, these shows have been uh, sort of like little mini autobiographies of a yogi, you know, just sort of mini sketches of uh, a person's life, a people's lives, and how their spiritual development has unfolded over the course of their lives. And so, sometimes we start with, uh, by going directly into uh, the moment a person awoke, if they feel like that's the most significant thing, and if they feel that there was a, a sort of a watershed moment, you know, uh, and a night and day difference. But for many people that is not the case, and it, it makes more sense to kind of trace a chronological development from even from early childhood, you know, things they've experienced, the significant stages that they've uh, gone through as they go along. So, how would you like to do it? I think, knowing my situation, I would say the best thing to do is to go back to the beginning, really the beginning of very early childhood, and kind of move along a little bit at a time. 
um, my, my memories of being really one or two years old is that they seem very uncanny to me now looking back at them because I realize that most one or two year old people couldn't be thinking like this. Mm -hmm. So there had to be something going on in my nervous system right at the get-go. Yeah. Um, and it's funny because I, I'm in a group in Charlotte that I'm facilitating and one of the women that actually is being a buddy in the group had this cognition about me and she said, I saw you in a crib looking out the window and it was just kind of uncanny for me because that crib looking out the window was a whole world for me for the first couple of years of my life. And you remember that. Absolutely. In and that's why I thought it was so interesting mm -hmm. that that's what she picked up on immediately. And what was interesting about it is because my adult self was obviously on board because there was a, a young person in, I was, it, this was in New York City, mm -hmm. and I lived in a garden apartment complex in Queens. And there was a young boy that I became friendly with. Now remember, I, I, I was very, very young, yeah. you're talking about. So, but I seemed to have a complete comprehension of his whole situation, that his family had come from Germany, it was after the Holocaust, he had cerebral palsy. You mean and at the age of one or two you had this conversation? Yes, yes. And you remember having had the conversation? Yes, yes, that's what okay. I'm telling you, that I remember this whole thing. And then I would actually, that a lot of the thinking that I have now, mm -hmm. you know, where I, because my whole life is about looking into other people and helping them and understanding where they're coming from, that that comprehension or that understanding was completely available that young. Yeah. Because I remember my mom picking me up from the crib and I remember feeling like I wanted to talk to her about all this, but I didn't even have the language yet. Didn't talk. I didn't have the language yet. Right. I, I talked. I, I learned to talk very early, right. but I, I didn't have enough of the complex language right. to describe to her the cognition that I was having about this boy named Harvey. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's how far back this goes. And um, how old was Harvey? Thirteen. And you were two. And, or one or right, two. Right. And Har was Harvey actually tell, telling you anything about himself, or you were just picking up on it? No, I, I think these were all impressions that I had about his mother, and very similar to things that happen to you now. Right. Very, very similar. You just kind of cognize yeah, all this right, information right. about and him. It just would come to me, and, and, and I would have that compassionate witness of feeling towards mm -hmm. that. Right. So it was very, very early. Yeah. Um, however, it's been pretty lonely. Uh, journey <laughs> in that regard. Right. So I think what's happened more for me is our incremental psychological adjustments mm -hmm. to the situation. And of course changes in consciousness. Sure. And I think it's an ongoing situation mm -hmm. forever. I, I don't believe that there's any, you know, end road. Yeah, that's a recurring theme in these mm -hmm. discussions. Um, mm -hmm. Because you know, some people do feel like, well, you reach a certain point and you're done. And I just haven't seen any evidence of that yet, you know. Well, I, I'm sure there's all different types of situations that come up for people, and some people that I've talked to feel very content and complete, and and there's really not any striving there. Right. You know, I'm probably the complete flip opposite. Uh, I'm mis striving. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you ask anybody. Yeah. I mean, I'm on overdrive most mm -hmm. of the time, but I don't know why that's true. It's just the truth. It's your makeup. It's my makeup. Yeah. Right. And and uh, not to digress, but I would I would suggest that even the people who say I'm content and complete, they could have light years of progress yet to make, 
they're just sort of taking a breather, you know, or probably they're progressing, you know, but it's just not a, a priority for them to sort of push it. Uh, but, you know, given the, the scope of poten human potential or divine potential, I would be reluctant to say that anybody's finished that I've encountered. Yeah, I, I would agree with you about that 100%. I mean, that's my perception too. And I, I, and, and I think part of it is because I have kind of a large view of what a completion would look like. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty big. We'll talk about that. that. I'm not there yet. Yeah. Well, let's go back to when you were two. Because we don't want to jump ahead too far. <laughs> well, so now we move up the timeline um, mm -hmm. about seven, eight, nine years old. And, and see, for me, I think there, there's a combination of things to consider. One is just being what we would consider now to be a gifted kid. Mm -hmm. And gifted children were not very well understood in the 50s and 60s. And unless it really popped out in a, in a more uh, classical way, it was hard for people to tell what those gifts were. And my particular gifts were more inner perceptual gifts. Right, they weren't so academic. Or... No, well, they, I mean, I had very, yeah, very grades. good grades, yeah. but my gifts were more of a, if you will, you know, uh, intuitive and psychic nature. Right. And creative nature. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, when I was a very young child, I was already writing very sophisticated poetry. I remember sending one of my poems out to um, the woman who wrote The Wrinkle in Time, oh, yeah. you remember? Oh, she is, yeah. And, you know, had getting very good feedback on that. It was mm. in the sixth grade. Yeah. Um, so, but beyond that, I, I, I had that seriousness of purpose that was always there. You mm. know, in, in, in Yiddish, my mother calls it an ulta cup, which basically means an old head. Uh -huh. and, and my mom is fond to say that I was never a child. It, I mean, I was a child. But I wasn't a child as she, you know, understood other children to be. And I mean, did you play with dolls and you know, go out and play hopscotch and I, just I was do very, very some... self-aware right from the get-go uh -huh. and very driven right from the get-go. So you didn't do so many of those normal little kid things? No, and if I did do them, they always had some kind of inner meaning for me. I mean, I was developing other languages and I was... Uh -huh doing all sorts of unusual stuff when I was a kid, you know. Did you have many friends that you could hang out with, or did, were you sort of a loner because you couldn't relate to anybody, or they couldn't relate to you? Well, you know, luckily, uh, God organized for me to have a little girl that lived right next door to me, mm -hmm. who eventually moved to Canada, mm -hmm. <laughs> who um, was my buddy growing up. Good. And I had a couple of buddies, and she was one of them. And she ended up being a yoga teacher and oh. living in Canada. Cool. And get the picture and right. left home at like 17 and didn't go to the prom and <laughs> so I, I did have a buddy and I and my relationship with this young girl Marcia is almost exactly like my relationship with Doug who's sitting right in front of me yeah. <laughs> that you know we, we had a very creative rapport and she did a lot of listening to me pouring my little heart out about all my languages that I was hearing in my awareness and codes that I was developing and all sorts of creative unusual things that were going on with me yeah. you know in early childhood and right through until I left that town when I was 14 this was on Long Island at right. this point so I, I was always an unusual kid and the, the big turning point for me was that was around nine years old. Okay. Before we get to that, would it be worth elaborating a bit on these languages and codes, or, um, or are you about to say that anyway? 
I mean, are you talking about actual languages that are spoken in the world, or just languages that are completely unknown to others and that were just right? Well, there were a lot of things going on for me. I mean, I was studying music, and I did a lot of piano playing growing uh -huh. up. And I was in a little group with other young girls, and we would perform in, you know, in pretty serious performance situations. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of pressure on me to yeah. do that. But yeah, I, I was perceiving and experiencing, that's the only way I can put it, code, you know, kind of like now we would think of this programming code, you know, I had all these little symbols and icons and words and I was trying to understand them. And Did they mean something to you? Well, part of what was happening is that around 9, 10, 11 years old, I would wake up in the middle of the night, and of course this was before personal computers, but I'd actually see computer screens in front of me that would appear and actually read these things at night and study. Right. So they were like televisions, which we right, had in those days. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that, and, but there would like be two or three of them in huh. front of me, and I would just stay up at night and watch them, okay? And they had language, and basically I was studying at night, which so is what I So you wouldn't be dreaming now. these things. You would be actually no, in, in the waking state. No, they actually appeared as holograms yeah, in my Maybe room. sitting up in bed. You got and, it. And they were, and but it, there was screens. a clear as day. You know, like huh. you could see them. And in childhood, I had a lot of this kind of hologrammatic experience where mm -hmm. things would actually appear in the room. They weren't like internal, they were externalized, mm -hmm. which from the time I was four, this was going on. Huh. So, um, Would beings appear or more like inanimate no, things? No, beings appear too, mm -hmm. yeah. I had a whole, oh, <laughs> whole, a whole thing going. Gang of friends. <laughs> yeah, I had a whole thing going. But I was studying, you know, right, right, right away, by nine huh. or ten years old. Um, and a lot of the things that I write about now started right mm -hmm. then. Can you elaborate on, on what kind of things you would see on these screens? <clears throat> yeah, it was really about physics, science, what we would think of as physics and science. Huh. And language. I mean, you'd see equations and yep. things like that, and yep. they would make sense to you. Well, th somehow my higher self, I guess, was understanding some of these things, because mm -hmm. that's what I'm doing now, but it's taken 40 years mm -hmm. to get there, but at the time, Part of the problem is that I was having all these experiences and there was zero anybody to talk to about it, right. of course. They don't know? think you were nuts if you try it. Well, I did try, because oh. <laughs> it's my nature to try to share that stuff. Right. So I definitely tried. I tried to elicit help from teachers, parents, you know. But in the end, I mean, I had one very traumatic experience with a babysitter. I tried to talk to her about something that was happening and she locked me in my room and basically punished me. Yeah, you know. she thought you were lying or... Just, yeah, whatever, I don't know. Yeah. Because some little elf being was in my room and, you know, I, I wanted to tell her about it. Uh, so, uh, essentially, uh, it was challenging. It was challenging. Yeah. So, I, I got more and more internalized and less and less able to share. Right. That's kind of what happened. Um, so, that was my childhood, in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And... So you said around the age of nine something significant happened. Yes, I had a teacher. It's funny because somebody just pushed, somebody placed this picture on Facebook just two weeks ago of my fourth grade teacher and our fourth grade class. Wow. And that was the turning point for me huh. because this teacher named Mr. Rebell really got me ah. just right at the get-go. Cool. I don't know how, but he did. And <clears throat> he kept saying to me, you're, you know, of course it's hard when you're nine. He says, oh, you're going to have a lot of friends in college. You know, when you're nine, that yeah. sounds like four lifetimes. Yeah, right. Because, but they'll, you'll, but you're gonna have to wait till then because you know, 
he realized that people had a very difficult time understanding me sure. because I was But you would sit unusual. and tell him stuff about Oh, yeah, I yeah. told him a lot of stuff. Uh -huh. I, I didn't tell him about some of the things I'm telling you, though. Mm -hmm. But, he, you know, I was writing and doing a lot of creative writing, and, um, you know, some of that was very sophisticated for a child. Yeah. Very sophisticated. You know, when I look back at it now, I can hardly believe that I wrote those Did things. you actually say some of that stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, I wish that I had, but my mom, God bless her, threw out <laughs> Cleaned everything. Cleaned it out, yeah. yeah. I mean, but you know, in like in sixth grade, I, I spent I, I spent the entire year, I wrote a book in sixth mm -hmm. grade and that my mom had to type, of what course, because I didn't even know how to type, on Japan. It was like a hundred-page man, hundred manuscript. You just got all Japan. interested in Japan. Right. I started researching and I had all these things out from the Atomic Energy Commission mm -hmm. on Japan and I was very, very concerned about the atomic situation. Right. So and then I went back in history and they were all I had cut out all these pictures of different eras of Japan and I mean it was it was it was a treatise really, you know, that my mom had to type up. Yeah. You know? So, you know, my parents really tried to handle me. And mm -hmm. and my mom's still trying to handle me. To this oh she's moment. still alive, good. Yes, yeah, she is, that's why I'm What was trying. your dad's profession? Um, my dad was a traffic manager for United Merchants and Manufacturers in New York City. Okay. And he passed on quite early in 1980. Right. Um, all right, so I don't think we quite finished what you were about to say or were saying about the breakthrough when you were nine, did we? Well, I think what the breakthrough was is that that was an awakening for me. That in a sense, this what, teacher was like oh, a, the teacher. Was, the teacher yeah. was like a guru. Right. Really, he was, and everything about him was that way. He was an extremely wise person. I mean, he was able to take me and this kid named Robert Zarin in that class, mm -hmm. who was really functionally retarded, right. and work with both of us beautifully. Yeah. You see what I mean? And he can, can really keep help this boy have his dignity. Right. You see what I'm saying? So he, he was an incredible teacher. He ended up being very successful in that school system and very well known. And I was just very, very fortunate to have him as a teacher. That's great. And so he really sort of validated and gave you yes. confidence for yes. what, what yes. you're going through. Yeah, he, he really, really understood me, which hmm. is quite remarkable. I had a teacher like that when I was in high school. Um, whom I later learned had gone on to become a professional psychic, but I was just this crazy mixed up kid, you know, and on the verge of getting into drugs and everything. But, but she she just had this really nice blend of sensitivity and good humor and didn't take me too seriously. And, you know, she, she used to just call me Archer. And uh, a, a teacher can make a big difference in a person's life, you know. Absolutely, and yeah. I've had some really good teachers. Yeah, I've been very fortunate that way. Hmm. So we're, we're moving on into your teenage years. Yeah, your teenage years. Well, I, I didn't have a very typical teenage years because, first of all, I was doing music so seriously. Uh, and then my parents did not have very much money, so right. there was always the struggle financially. And when I was in, I think, a freshman year of high school, my parents wanted me to stop taking music lessons because it cost so much. Mm. And because I didn't want to stop taking music lessons, I devised the scheme where I was going to memorize this Chopin scherzo and present it in this auditorium to all these people to prove to them that I would be able to be worthy of being able to keep my music lessons. Right. And I was the only, you know, I think most of the people were upperclassmen compared mm -hmm. to me. And I got a standing ovation. There were about mm -hmm. 600 people in the auditorium. Oh, cool. It was 
bumper to bumper. So you memorized it and you did a good job. Yes, yeah. yes, it was like 23 pages of music to memorize, you know. Wow. And um, and I did a lot of it on my own because I wasn't getting quite the training that I needed to do it. You yeah. see what I mean? So, and then after that, they were still balking about letting me have my music lessons, which Boy. is kind of a typical dynamic in another <laughs> world. But I think part of it was that my parents, I think, were always worried about me. Uh -huh. they, they were worried about what I was going to do with my life, you see, because they, they kind of got that it was not going to be easy for me to fit into any one particular thing. And they were afraid that I'd gotten lost in this music world, and, and what would I be doing? I'm, I'm, I can't help but laugh, because <laughs> when I was that age, my mother used to set a, a kitchen timer to half an hour and said, sit and practice the piano for half an hour. And I'd, I'd hate every second of it, and finally I would throw my music on the floor and run out of the house. <laughs> what a contrast. Well, and my, my parents were going, would you get out and play and act like a kid? Yeah. <laughs> That's what my parents were doing. <laughs> so, and, you know, I was, I was that way, and I, I'm exactly the same way now. Yeah. I have exactly the same dynamic with my mother. Mm -hmm. I mean, she, you know, it's the same thing. Are you, are, you, she's, are you having a good time in Fairfield? Are you playing? Are you getting any playing done at all? Oh, boy. So it's the same thing. <laughs> What can I say? Yeah, I, you know, I've traded places with you. I, I, I would much rather that I had been the, you know, serious, focused. Well, it has its drawbacks. It, yeah. it really has its drawbacks because when I look back on the whole thing now, I feel like it was absolutely an adaptation psychologically because I really didn't understand how to cope with what was going on in consciousness. Yeah, and I, I did not have the support that I. Well, that's interesting. So, you, so something really profound was going on in consciousness, and you were sort of pouring yourself into music as a way of coping or dealing with that. Music and creative writing, but yeah. yeah. So, what would you say was going on with consciousness that was hard to cope with? Well, that I was just receiving a tremendous amount of cognitional information that was way, way beyond my years. Mm -hmm. Mostly at night. In school too. Huh. I. I I remember an example of this is, I think I was in eighth grade, my dad decided that I should read Catcher in the Rye, mm -hmm. okay? Well, you know, in the, whatever year this was, 50s or 60s, eighth graders weren't reading this book. Right. So, <laughs> I came in, and not only did I read the book, but I wrote this stream of consciousness uh, uh, prose poem about mm -hmm. the book, mm -hmm. which had to do with, with awakening, essentially, right. and which is what really the book's about. Right. And uh, sexual awakening on top of that, you know, now I'm like 13 years old, you see. So I get up in front of the class mm -hmm. and I read this thing. And the teacher, she was just nonplussed. First of all, she didn't believe I had written it. Mm. She thought an adult had written it, but right. it wasn't true. And then she got that I really did write it, but then the kids gave me such a hard time. And so, you know, I ended up getting bullied about this little book report mm. for months, oh, you know, where shame. I went to see some kid and, you know, she said, my parents said that you would plagiarize that and there's no way someone your age could have written this, mm. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, well, I look had a lot of what Mozart was doing at the age of five, you know? It was not uh, easy. Mm. It was not easy. Yeah. And, and, but the experiences that I had writing these kinds of things or learning these kinds of things 
No, I was just receiving an opening into a very deep inner wisdom level just very, very early in childhood. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I remember I was seven and my, when my grandmother died. And I remember being in my little bedroom in this house, having all these realizations about my grandmother's life and her having cancer and her relationship with my grandfather. And, you know, when you, see, to me, that was all very normal because that's how I was functioning. But when I look back on it, I can see why nobody thought it was normal yeah. because what seven-year-olds are thinking this way, you right. know what I mean? So I can see why the adults were having a challenge with me. But from my side, I was just being myself, and I couldn't really mm -hmm. be anything else. It's interesting um, that, I mean, some people have this orientation, as you've been describing, where they're downloading information, or they're being given information by guides, or they're being shown screens, as you were describing. The, the interview I did, uh, the one before, the previous one, was with this woman down in New Mexico who had that kind of experience all of her life and her guides are telling her this and her guides are telling her that and a lot of people can't relate to that sort of thing uh, I can't in terms of my own experience but uh, and, and a lot of people in the sort of enlightenment field these days the, the Neo-Advaita crowd and all would abhor that sort of talk because it it's sort of uh, to them would seem to be kind of wallowing in the Maya of you know this illusory world and taking it far too seriously but I think there's something fascinating about it, um, in that I, you know, there. It's like maybe you could talk a little bit, uh, either now or as we go along, about the the dynamics of what's actually going on. I mean, who is it that's feeding information, and why? And uh, you know, is it all just within your own consciousness that things are being sort of conjured up, and uh, you know, sort of a self-teaching process, or are there higher beings or wiser souls who try to guide our destiny and um, you know who find willing and, and able uh, participants whom they can teach and who can then turn around and you know perform a function in the world by virtue of the fact that they have a concrete physical body and they're a human being here on earth which these more ascended souls might not be able to perform so um, perhaps we could reflect on that, but uh, I don't want to derail your story either. You know, but maybe in the course of this discussion, we can we can cover those points. Sure. <laughs> uh, well, would you like to comment on that now, or would you like to sort of um, continue on with the? Well, my personal feeling is that it's really not a good idea to try to judge anybody else's experience. Good point. And. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm very, being a spiritual counselor for 30 years, I've heard every possible experience, mm -hmm. really, and they're all good. They're all part of the human condition. Mm -hmm. And truthfully, I don't think anybody has the answers to all the questions. Right. And really, you listen to people's experience, and that's what their experience is. Yeah. That's it. End yeah. of story. How can you really say whether it was the right experience or the wrong experience? It was their experience. Yeah, right. So say, that's yeah. that. End of yeah. story. However, if you want my opinion about all these kinds of things, my personal feeling about myself mm -hmm. is that I think I have a very active imagination, mm -hmm. obviously. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think I'm just a very creative person and mm -hmm. it just came with my packaging. Mm -hmm. um, 
I think that we don't understand the brain very well. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very profound area of endeavor. Mm -hmm. I think that our capacities to, to realize and understand and express intelligence are infinite. Right. And I think that probably all of us have counterparts to ourselves on other dimensions. Huh that we are only a very small portion of us is ever incarnated here. Mm. That uh, So the whole notion of enlightenment as a completion, that's where perhaps the fallacy begins. Mm. Because you can't be complete. Because you're not even connected to all the parts of you here. So what could be completed if you're mm. not even connected to the parts? Mm. Um, we, we really don't even understand incarnation yet. And, and quite frankly, I think most of the religions are very limiting in their expression of the truth. Mm -hmm. All of them. That's just my opinion. Um, I think that it's... It, but I will say this, I think Hinduism comes pretty close because there's so many different facets of Hinduism. Right. And within the context of that, it, you know, there are a lot of explanations and understandings about people that I think are very, very valuable, and that's probably why I've been attracted to, you know, a community and people that are in that mode. Right. Uh, not probably, no doubt. Mm -hmm. I, I'm very much in favor of the understanding of intelligence becoming more intelligent, like Marishi says, and I think the models that the brain comes up with about being able to interpret reality are just that, they're models that come, they, the brain comes up with, including models that have to do with information gathering like we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So I think that, personally, I definitely believe that there are other intelligences on other dimensions. I was just talking to somebody in another interview a few days ago, and I know for a fact that that is the case. I mean, I, I can't say that more emphatically than that, and that that we, all of us, are in contact with those intelligences all the time, mm -hmm. but we just don't, usually are not self-aware about that, right. that's all. And the reason is because there is a, a, there is a, 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 a purpose for being self-enclosed. Mm -hmm. Kind of think of it like being in a house. Why do you live in a house? Why don't you live outside? Protection from the elements. Exactly. Right? Yeah. You're, you're protected. You're sheltered. Right. And you have a, a circum, you know, you have a circumspect environment in mm -hmm. which you can be seated. Yeah. And that gives you a world in which you can focus. And mm -hmm. that's what a dimension is. It's a world in mm -hmm. which you can focus. So we need that in order to feel alive and real and here. But on the other hand, a whole big chunk of us is not here. Yeah. And, and never perhaps ever gets here because it can't it's too big it wouldn't fit in the box mm -hmm. and um, it's kind of like you know you move into a house and you have all these other possessions you just can't move them into the house right. because there's no room yeah and personally I think we narrow down and come into an incarnational cycle for reasons that we can't fully fathom probably till we leave and maybe not even then mm -hmm. and that there's just an awful lot to reality that we don't understand. Yeah. And the notion of the downloading idea, well, look at computers, they're downloading all the time too. Mm -hmm. So, of course, they're imitating our own brain and central nervous system. 
and, and what we understand about the downloading process is that information will sit someplace perhaps not accessible, and then when you need it, it will download. It right. will come in. You will push the button and there it will be. Why can't you put all that information in your consciousness all at once in waking state in a conscious way? Because it would be very overwhelming. Right. But what happens gradually is that as higher states stabilize, more and more of that aspect of cognitional information can come into waking state and can be accessed kind of like files in a computer. So you can move to this file, you can move to that file, and, and it, it literally feels like something is moving in you like a camera that's focusing on particular areas of information and understanding. And I think this is an aspect of the brain and central nervous system, and it is part of consciousness. And does everybody have that experience? No. Is, I'm sure everybody that you interview doesn't have that experience, but that's my experience, that, yeah. and it has been since childhood. And mostly for me, my path has been to integrate the information, to try to make sense of it, to articulate it, to, to give it a voice, to be able to make it user-friendly and useful. Uh, and, and it's been a journey of cognizing techniques and processes that would also share that information with other people and help them awaken and open up. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's just a continual process in that direction. So at, at one point you said, well, I have a very vivid imagination and I'm very creative. And you know, some people might say, well, yeah, she has a vivid, she's, she's a ma she imagined TV screens in her bedroom and she's kind of cooked up this whole cosmology of how the universe works and all that. Um, I don't share that skepticism personally, uh, but I, I have a good friend who watches these interviews and I often try to play devil's advocate by putting myself in his, from his perspective just to make things more concrete. Uh, but the, uh, what was I going to say? Well, you said, a minute ago you were saying how, um, you know, that what we actually are kind of cognizant of in terms of who we are, what we are, what we know, is just a small subset of a much bigger picture of what we really are. Um, were you saying that in the sense that uh, as an individual we're just a sort of a, a, ref a specific reflection of a universal awareness that we're all reflectors of, you're a reflector, I'm a reflector, cat's a reflector, or were you saying it more in terms of each of us as an, as an entity has a much larger reality? Oh yeah, each of us as an entity has a much larger reality and we're all part of a deeply woven interconnected collective uh -huh. consciousness. It's, it's both, it's both. not either or. Okay. And, um, and, and I think that, see, Personally, I just feel that people's experience, like I said, is their own experience. So yeah. if you don't have this experience, of course it's going to seem very odd to you or unusual or, you know. And my experience of life is that the only way that I ever get people to understand the experience is that I have to illustrate or demonstrate that mm -hmm. process to people. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've spent my whole life doing that. Mm -hmm. And so when I, you know, when people say, well, we're... Where does this come from, or how does it happen? Well, it's, it's just very simple. If you have a conversation with somebody, and you're sitting right in front of them, and you're 
reading the blueprint of their whole energy field and you can tell them just about anything that they might want to know about themselves and all the people that they know mm -hmm. and you've been able to do that since you were a kid and you've been developing it for 30 years well that's just your reality yeah okay so and maybe it's, it's not it's convincing for them well <laughs> that's the whole point yeah and i've had many i mean the classic example is i i was at this healing center in boston that a friend of mine brought to and she wanted me to be part of the staff. She had this idea mm -hmm. that I should come on staff. So the guy, and it was a, an alternative healing center, he sat me down in this room and he said, just looked at me and he says, I don't believe in people like you. I think you're all quacks uh -huh. and I don't want to have anything to do uh -huh. with this kind of thing. Right. Because we have acupuncturists and you know we have people here that are legitimate, real people and I don't want you. <laughs> Okay, so my friend <laughs> says to him, she says, okay, she says, and, and he says, I bet you can't say one thing to me that would convince me otherwise. So my friend said, look, all of you leave the room and let Jan sit with, you, with this gentleman mm -hmm. for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So everybody left the room in this meeting, and I sat down with this guy in about eight seconds. You know? Right, I just said something to him that was very, very private, uh -huh. that no one could possibly know, and he just said, oh my God. You know, it was it was an awakening for cool. me. It really was. Yeah. It was just like right there. I, it was like like that, you know. And and I heard about this for years afterwards through different people about it. But he wouldn't let me work at the center. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so and so that kind of gives you an illustration of yeah. the way my life has gone. And mm -hmm. so I always have skeptical people around. I always have people who are saying, oh. Well, couldn't possibly be true, or you couldn't possibly do that, or it couldn't happen to me, or it won't happen to me. You know, it, it's kind of like when I was a little kid, I had this record, and it and the record had this, these lines on it. It was a little, you know, small little child's record, and, and it was carrots grow from carrot seeds. And there was this little lyric in it that says, Nah, nah, they won't come up. Nah, nah, they won't come up. Well, that's the theme of my entire life. It could have been my mantra, you know what I mean? Because that's what people have always been telling me. However, when these things happen and, and people actually observe the process, you mm -hmm. see what I mean? And they see, oh yeah, that really does happen for her, or this really is real, or she can really do this yeah. like this. Like, you know, I had a job at MIT Library, and, you know, I was I, I was supposed to be writing these little anthology, uh, you know, little um, descriptions of different passages and so forth. And, uh, you know, I just was able to do it very, very quickly because this was kind of my thing. You know, I could just pick up the book, feel into the book. I didn't even really have to read the book, and I'd write the thing. But you do about 120 or so of these things. Uh, you know, the, the head librarian just let me go and, and said, look, just write them, great, you know, this is what we need done, and you can do them, this is before computers yeah. too, just write them out, you know, so that's what I did. And so that's how I got through school, you see what I mean, because, mm -hmm. so at first there was always that skepticism, that's not really going to happen, she can't really do that, and, but did, did that skeptical aspect internalize and cause a lot of disturbance psychologically, you bet. Absolutely. 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 Oh. Absolutely. It's it still working itself out. It was very traumatic. Interesting. So a lot of people gave you a hard time. Yeah, yeah it's very traumatic yeah. because because we all as human beings want to feel accepted and sure. loved and 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 that that feeling of having to prove yourself yeah. all the time, which I, I have had constantly since I was little. 
uh, is very wearing. Wears on you, it, yeah. It's wearing after right. a whole lifetime. Yeah. Um, but you know, that's been the fate of anybody who sort of goes public with some kind of special ability or state of consciousness or whatever. They get crucified, they get stoned, they get, you know, ridiculed. There's, because, you know, they're, they're just so kind of far outside the paradigm that they threaten the paradigm. And I, I understand that, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, but having said that, uh, you know, I did have the courage. I mean, I've been doing very unusual work full-time for 30 years mm -hmm. and supporting myself doing it, which is not easy. Great. But, it, you know, it's, it's nice, though. I mean, it beats working in a, an office, you know. It does. <laughs> it does beat working in an office. And I, I gave up the office in about 1979 or so, yeah. and I haven't really looked back. Yeah. However, what we're discussing, you know, punching up against that skepticism wall, mm -hmm. but it's not only that, it's much deeper than that. It's not just about the skepticism, it's about what's really interesting to me and important is trying to really access these very deep understandings about the nature of reality, about uh, different levels of different types of information, and being able to trust those levels of information and understanding and wisdom within oneself. Mm. That's what's most important. Yeah. And, and that is a psychological process that we really, in my opinion, don't fully understand right. yet and has a lot of parameters to it that need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's really the, the key issue. Um, and, and essentially, to me, consciousness has to be talking to itself. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? That the consciousness is conscious, and therefore it has to be talking to itself. And yes, of course, consciousness is picking forms or, or modalities to talk to itself through, mm -hmm. which is everything that you're looking at in this room right yeah. now, and therefore any type of creativity or anything like that science, mathematics, whatever it might be, is basically just consciousness talking to itself. Mm -hmm. And But we're also learning how to talk back. I mean, that's the whole point. We're trying to communicate with consciousness, which is a hugely vast thing, mm -hmm. and which actually wants to talk to you. And, and this is what has led me into doing the time and space work that I do, because it's time talking to you, it's space talking to mm -hmm. you, it's... It, 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 it's the mechanics of, of, of these things itself talking to us. And, and that's how we learn to experience them and to work through them and to understand what they are. Mm -hmm. So they have a voice. They have a, a, a mechanism of, of communication. And that mechanism is what's fascinating to me. And therefore, I do feel that there, there's a huge amount of understanding about consciousness, enlightenment, and awakening that we simply do not have. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, I'm very impatient when, when people make it very simplistic, mm -hmm. because I, I feel that it's quite complex, right. and it's not simple. You know how everybody mm -hmm. in the spiritual world, oh, it's so simple, it's so simple. It's not simple. It's incredibly complicated. Yeah. And, and people, yes, it's simple in the sense that you're here, you're alive, you're present, you're, right. you're aware, you're up, you're here, you, so, you know what I mean? But in terms of really understanding the mechanisms of consciousness, I mean, most people don't even know how a doorbell works, never mind how consciousness works, <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So why would they know how consciousness works? Yeah. Immediately when I hear that kind of, you know, emphatic understanding, I'm like, okay, great, have that. 
but you know, not for me. Thank you very much. I tend to react the same way. I mean, you know, I mean, there's always a sort of a paradox in in things where, in one sense, as you said, it is very simple. You know, you hear somebody like Eckhart Tolle talking, and there's, you know, he's very good at articulating simple presence and yes. being. Yes. You know, and, and simplest form of awareness, as Marsha used to put yes. it. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, there's there's a sort of a, a great depth and, and richness that could be explored and elaborated, and that one could learn not only to experience but to express. Yes. And you know, there's no end to, to right. that development. Right. And, you know, and, and in terms of that, you know, the best of us is is still a. a you know, a neophyte <laughs> trying to learn how to do that, you know, because there's so much yet to be developed, I would say. Well, in my opinion, every sentient being in the whole multiverse is on the same path, and all of us are trying to come to deeper levels of understanding. And, and whether it's a little bug or some extraterrestrial being, we're all coming into the same kind of understanding. And, and, but, yeah, the oversimplification of it in the spiritual community I actually think it's impairing development. I mean, I think it, it actually impedes development because, because what happens is that people have a justification to stand still. Mm -hmm. and, and that's not such a good thing. Right. It, even if you just take one aspect, like compassion, mm -hmm. let's say, which is a big one, and you really enter into that and go deep into the whole experience of compassion, it's a huge, vast, compassion-witnessing process of feeling and feeling more and feeling more and feeling more and feeling more. And feeling more. If you just take that one aspect, it's infinite. You yeah. see what I mean? So how could it possibly be done? And, and you know, I'm done. I'm done. There's nothing right. more to do. I mean, if you take compassion and compare it to piano playing, uh, you know, you can become a Mozart of compassion, but how many people do that? And how, how close are people who say, I'm done, to actually reaching that level of mastery? Well, that's what I'm trying to yeah. say. And, and I think there are different types of mastery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, there's this issue of creativity, which is a kind of mastery. And then there's the mastery, and creativity goes over a vast terrain of the sciences. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of creative people avert the sciences, they don't want to deal with their left brain, thank you very much, I'll stay in my right brain. But ultimately what I feel enlightenment is, is a, a vast, complex integration of right and left brain, mm. so that we're, as I'm fond to say, feeling mathematically. Mm. We, we actually have developed the feeling level of mathematics, which is what I do believe advanced beings have, mm. uh, have attained. And so, so there's so much there. Uh, and not to mention all of the human attributes of wisdom and compassion and, and uh, the ability to truly walk in the moccasins of another person. Mm -hmm. So there's so much there to, to go towards. Uh, well, it's not boring. No. I really like that. I'm glad you're emphasizing this. You know, and it's, it's a perennial point in these interviews. It keeps coming up. Because I keep harping on it in my own simple way about teachers who say, well, you know, it's really very simple. There is no person. There's nobody home. And once you realize that and, and accept it and, and know that, the, you know, there's no doer and the world is an illusion, you're done. 
and all these frilly notions of reincarnation and God and, and all this other stuff. It's a lot of bunk that people just use to entertain themselves or make themselves feel good. I mean, there are very popular teachers who actually speak that way. Oh, yeah, and I've met them, and I, I'm quite familiar with all that, and I think that's bunk. Yeah. I really do. Uh, I think it's total bunk. I mean, you know, harking back to what you said a few minutes ago, Can fine, that's their experience, you know. And, and I don't even know if it's their experience. Maybe not. I won't even say that. Yeah. It's a religious experience, okay? And, 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 you know, I've been around, I've been a 35-year Buddhist meditator. Mm. I've been around the Buddhist tradition for a long time. It mm. is part of the, in a sense, of the Buddhist experience, that simplicity, okay? Mm -hmm. And it is a religious notion. Mm -hmm. So that's beautiful. It is a religious notion. I have nothing against religion, but I do feel what I said that the religious notions can impair progress rather than help it. Yeah. Even if they're most beautiful religious notions, and there is a great beauty, we, there is a simplicity that exists in consciousness, and and that simplicity is absolutely what people are saying. From my own experience, mm -hmm. it is a hyper presence. It is a sense of everything folding into the present and being awake in that presence and never sleeping out of it, which is exactly what my experience is because it is that way, sleeping, literally. So I get that. Yeah. But so what? Yeah. So what? Okay, it's you good have foundation. that. Yeah, it's a good foundation, exactly. It's like right. scales on a piano. Okay, you got that. Got your scales. Right, but <laughs> you know, what is that? You know what I mean? That is yeah. the beginning. Okay, and why is it hard to experience that awakeness and that presence? It's because the present itself is being pulled from the past and the future. Okay, and these are state, not only states of being, but they're scientific states. They're, they're cosmological and, and physics states. Mm -hmm. And this is my thing, okay? And so that's why it's so hard to stay in the present, because you have a pull from the future and a pull from the past, and these two forces are constantly pulling on the present like taffy. Why are they doing that? Because it's their nature to do that, because the present is being fed by the future. Uh -huh. And, and the, the past is being fed by the future, and it's a synchronistic internal motion that's not only internal in consciousness, but in the cosmos. So that's why it's hard to, quote, stay in the present. So how do you stabilize the present? We actually don't really stabilize the present. I think that's an illusion in itself. I don't believe that any of these people that say they stabilize the present have really stabilized the present, because the present isn't stable. Well, a lot of them say there is no past or future. I yeah, mean, those I are know. just notions. You I know. know, I know what they And, saying. you know, like yeah. Eckhart Tolle, for instance, said, you know, the Romans didn't live 2,000 years ago. The, the Romans lived in the now. Right. And it's always the now. Right. So how can you be out of the now, you know? Yeah, I, I get that. It's a notion. And, and, and there's a certain level of truth to it. Mm -hmm. Because everything is folding back into the present. So therefore, the present is very... It's very effulgent. It's very full of, of, of consciousness, okay? But the problem with that is that it leaves no room for consciousness exploration and it will completely limit our capacity to deal with extra-dimensional life, which is where we are right now. And we have to come into a reckoning about that. And if we hold on to those new-agey notions that 
these gentlemen and women are describing, it is going to completely limit our ability to communicate with anybody else except other people that have those notions. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from my personal experience that advanced beings think it's completely ridiculous. <laughs> okay? And I will put it to you just uh -huh. like that. It is ridiculous. Okay? They, they themselves, and you meet really advanced beings, there is definitely a feeling of this presence, though. Don't kid yourself. I mean, it's huge. In fact, you know, people that have been around Maharishi or great beings, you know, I've had the pleasure of being around Ama and mm -hmm. Karunamayi and Shrima right. and all these people. Yes, there is a presence. Don't kid yourself. Sure. It's big right. and it's powerful. And it, it's like a black hole. It will suck you right in. So you're like, you know what I mean? And you feel like you can hardly breathe in that presence. Well, multiply that about 50,000 and you're, now you're going to get true interdimensional beings that are the kinds of beings that we do need to interact with if we're going to have a planet in the next 10 or 15 years. And we've been interacting with them, in my opinion, for centuries, but that a disclosure period is about to happen. And when we do meet these people, it's going to become very self-evident that our notion of enlightenment is a very earthbound notion, and it's cultural and religious, and it has nothing to do with what's really going on in the multiverse. So I do have very strong feelings about this, obviously, because it's been my experience since childhood. And yes, you do feel that presence. And yes, you do have a recognition that you are self and not self. Mm -hmm. Okay, so is there a self? Is there a no self? I mean, you know, you could talk about it till the cows come home. But ultimately, there, there is an individuated consciousness and a non-individuated consciousness, and they are functioning simultaneously mm -hmm. in, a, in a mechanism that we don't fully It's beautiful. That's a really good experience. It's just that what I'm saying is that, that, that having on other planes constantly, every night of the week, meeting very advanced folks, I can just tell you that, 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 that what they're about is constantly uh, absorbing more and more information. Information about you, that being able to go into incredible depths of contact with other sentient beings that, that's almost hard for us to even comprehend because it's so complete and deep, to being able to, to cognize and understand the whole levels of reality that, that really we're just beginning to explore. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that to me is a kind of enlightenment. And, and, and not kind of, it is a, enlightenment. It, it, in other words, what is enlightenment? It's, it's light coming into the nervous system and operating at a different vibratory frequency. Right. And, so they're, and, and they're constantly in a state of search. So the whole notion, oh, the search is over. There's no more searching. Good luck. Good luck. I mean, come on, get real. I mean, okay, so you, we'll plant you outside the universe for a little while and let you sit there and tell me that there's nothing to search. And let's see how you get back in. I'm just letting you roll with this because this, this is interesting. <laughs> I'm not interrupting too much. Um, now, when you say you're in... Well, you said a little while ago that these advanced beings feel that this sort of simplification or dumbing down of enlightenment is very limiting and um, is yeah. unfortunate in a sense. 
you know, on the other hand, perhaps it's a, it, it, it has its way of contributing something of value. I mean, it's more valuable than Rush Limbaugh or, you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, it has, it's a stage for people. It's a, well, what I feel is that people want happiness. Right. And when you reach a certain place where you have a realization that, that, that there isn't really a need to, to suffer anymore mm -hmm. because the, the, the notion of suffering or the experience of suffering is limiting you to such an extent that it's, it's prohibiting your happiness. Right. This is a beautiful realization. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and there's nothing wrong with it. So why wouldn't that be, you know, an elevated truth? You yeah. see what I mean? Um, I don't, I personally have not met any folks that I believe are truly in higher states that don't emanate a certain type of happiness, but they don't emanate complacency. Right. And there's a very big a drive. difference. Yeah. You bet. Yeah. I mean, really advanced beings, like, I mean, People like, like, look at Shrima, you know, she's out there, you know, just chanting and carrying on, you know, she doesn't need to be doing this stuff anymore, right. you know, why would she have to chant the whole Chandi every day? I mean, if you know what the Chandi is, it's a manuscript that has to do with the goddess, okay, mm -hmm. in Sanskrit. Now, why would these beings perform pujas every day? Mm -hmm. Why, you know, just in the Hindu tradition sure. and in any of these religious traditions, why would my, you know, the people in my tradition, the rabbis, sit around and, and, and do prakas all day and, and you know, dubbing all day and do all these things? Why would people pray? Why would people search? Why would people hold? Because they're trying to hold up a vibratory frequency. Mm -hmm. And as you mature vibrationally, you, you are given more responsibility to uphold the vibratory frequency. And that's essentially what evolution is, is that you're... you're, you're it's like a bigger role. You're given a different tonality to uphold, mm -hmm. and, and, and the, within the context of that, there is a profound desire to give back, to serve, to, mm -hmm. to, to offer oneself. And if that sense has not come up for the person yet, because they're so content and complacent, mm -hmm. and they don't feel like they need to help anybody, mm -hmm. in my opinion, they're not very complete. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was about 12, 13 years old, one day my friend and I decided that we were going to walk to the next town to see the monkeys in the pet store. So we started walking, and little did we know it was 14 miles to the next town. And it was like, you know, early springtime, there was slush on the roads, we had these boots on, and we walked, and we walked, and we walked, and we kept saying to ourselves, it's just over the next horizon, you know. And we'd get to the next horizon, and it wouldn't be there yet. So we'd say, okay, it's just over the next horizon. And we actually managed to walk 14 miles to the, or maybe it was seven miles, maybe it was 14 round trip. We managed to finally get to the pet store, and it turned out it was a Sunday and it was closed. But the point I wanted to make is the next horizon. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's like people, you know, can have this sense of I'm content, I'm done, I'm resting in the self, uh, there's really nothing more, anything else is just sort of uh, superfluous. But I don't think they're going to be allowed to rest in that state perpetually because the force of evolution is such that, you know, eventually people are going to be propelled on. It's not the final resting place if there is, a, if there is such a thing. Uh, there are more horizons to reach. And maybe they deserve a breather for a little while. 
but there, you know. I just think the particular type of Shakti just hasn't awakened in that person mm. yet. I mean, there are different kinds of Shakti, different kinds of spiritual energy. energy. And that propelling, driving aspect of spiritual energy that moves and pushes, and, and it's what gives birth, literally. That labor, that force, is simply not very strong in that particular person. And there are all different kinds of shaktis and all different kinds of ways that the divine emanation works. And so that's okay, mm -hmm. you know, that's all right. Mm -hmm. But what I have trouble with is that that is going to be judged by the other people. See, immediately when you hear that judgment from someone and they're saying, well, that's all there is, so if you're experiencing anything else other than this, you know, it's phenomenological. Right, yes. And you've got a problem. Go back to go, don't collect $200, yeah. you know. I, I First of all, I think a lot of those people, in my experience, the people that have very strong kundalini awakening, okay, mm -hmm. which has been my experience, where the kundalini woke up in my 20s and created all sorts of stuff going on in my physiology to this day, it's very hard to have that kind of truly complacent notion of enlightenment mm. when you have this force like running. Yeah, <laughs> you have this force running in you twenty four seven, and it's like, ha! You know what I mean? And you're like, whoa! You know? And this is like going on all the time, and your breathing is changing, your body's changing, you're going through all these machinations, and different kinds of cities are awakening. It's very hard to say, oh yes, everything is so beautiful and complacent. You right. know what I mean? So it's a different kind of shakti. There are shaktis that involve that kind of very mellow, deep complacency. But that other kind of shakti doesn't engender that. So I think that's a big piece of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, I guess I've been, you know, because that has been my experience, who knows why, I've been more drawn to teachers that, that can work with and deal with uh, the kundalini shakti in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I do think that what we're talking about is, is, is just that. That's it. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and so, but, but the big problem that we have now on planet Earth is that all of us really need to get along with one another. Mm -hmm. And the, all the judgments, even in the spiritual community, really need to go. Mm -hmm. And as we know, the gurus don't even get along with one another. Yeah. I mean, they're fighting, you know. You know, one throwing the book down on the floor, you know, I don't like that one, don't go visit that one because you're my disciple and you can't, you know, whatever, and don't do their sadhana and don't do this and don't breathe that way and whatever. <laughs> All that stuff needs to go. Hmm. Because if it doesn't go, we aren't going to have a, a civilization of an elevated nature here. And, and I feel we're at a very big tipping point with that. We're either going to have that elevated fairly utopian civilization, or we're going to go to a whole different possible future which doesn't look that great. Mm. So you think it, you're not so um, necessarily optimistic it could go either way, you think? I think it could go either way, but I think it's going to require that everyone that has a rigidity of thinking and thinks they have all the answers, whether they're spiritual, religious, creative, political. scientific, political, you know, join the Tea Party. <laughs> because essentially all those belief structures are going to need to melt away. You know, what good is it 
to have an experience internally of a unified state where you really literally do experience self and other as, 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 as a completeness of experience, okay? It is a real experience. It's my own experience, but it, but it doesn't mean that you don't have biases or prejudices that come up on the level of the mind that need constant tending. It's like having a beautiful English garden. You still have to weed it. Right. And so you're going to be weeding it until you leave here and afterwards. That's a very good point. I mean, you referred to Maharishi and some of these, you know, great teachers, and you know, having known him and a, a couple of others fairly closely, um, there can, in spite of or in, along with, uh, you know, very profound, powerful, expanded uh, consciousness and a great deal of shakti and darshan and so on and so forth, there can also be, you know, fairly deeply, in, in my, from my perspective, fairly deeply entrenched cultural biases and, and personal proclivities exactly. and, and so on, which can actually cause difficulties for the person. Absolutely. Um, and I don't know, and in fact it's hard to name a guru, a famous spiritual teacher, who hasn't tripped up in some way as a result of these personal tendencies. And I don't know why that is. It, it almost seems as though there's a tendency to feel so enlightened or self-sufficient or content uh, that one ceases to s scrutinize oneself very carefully. The, the, uh, I'm well, just speculating here. We're, we're all a product of our cultural imprinting, mm -hmm. and you, you cannot help that. I mean, I'm Jewish. Both my sides of my family are Jewish. I, you know, I'm 58 years old. I, I, it's so obvious to me how Jewish I am. You know what I mean? I don't even try to escape it anymore. I used to, you know, but I don't anymore. I'm, I kind of feel oh, that's you are cool. who you are. I yeah. am who I yeah. am, right? Um, so, so my thinking is Jewish. My understanding of things is very Jewish. Okay, I get that. It's so obvious to me. However, what what is necessary now? is to view that with some objectivity mm -hmm. and to recognize that one does have cultural, tribal, religious, social, uh, nationalistic belief structures that, that are deeply embedded in us. But part of the awakening process is to be able to view them like the pattern on this rug mm -hmm. and they're just patterns. Right. And, and what happens is at, with more higher consciousness and more expanded awareness, you're able to, to, to dive into a pattern, understand the fabric of it, and, and ideally move away from it. Mm -hmm. And so these are the teachers, this I believe is what the, what the uh, phase transition is now. So it doesn't mean that the teachers that are in the other paradigm are less than either because they think of the pioneering efforts that all of them have had to make to bring the planet to where it is now. Yeah. You know, yeah. if there was no people like this, then there would be no higher consciousness that we'd be even discussing and having mm -hmm. this interview about. And I admire personally all of these people. But in terms of the new model of where I feel things are going, people are going to need to have to step out of their little box, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, and realize that there's a whole big world, like I said, of understanding and knowledge out there that is so vast, so infinite, 
and, and completely out of the context of any one particular religion or social convention. Yeah. And, and I do think that it will probably be facilitated by meeting beings that are not from this planet because it's going to be self-evident when you meet a couple of them and they're really that elevated, you're going to realize that they can't possibly have the same notions that you have because they didn't come from the same religion. Yeah. And so they're, they're obviously not going to be worshipping Maimonides or Muhammad. And if they do know about these beings, which they absolutely will know, and you know why? Because all they have to do is sit with you for 32 seconds and just be in your energy field. And everything that you are and feel and think is just like a dinner plate in front of them. Mm. And that's why they will know. So they don't need to watch television. You see what I mean? It's going to be right there in front of them on a compassionate and benevolent level, assuming we're talking about beings that are compassionate and benevolent, which is not all of them by any means. So that intelligence, that interdimensional intelligence, that, that prescience of knowing is what we need. Because if we don't arrive there very soon, you're not going to be able to have the respect for Mother Earth, the ecology, the situation. What good is it to have a few people bumbling around talking about enlightenment when the, when the planet, you know, is poisoning itself? So how do we achieve that? I mean, it helps for you to just say it, for people to ponder, and, and you know, this notion. And it helps perhaps to recognize that, uh, you know, we do have personal individual characteristics regardless of our state of consciousness. And I, and I think it also helps to recognize that you know, and, uh, and, and the personal individual characteristics of a, a saint or a, a great guru are not necessarily earmarks of enlightenment. They're his personal characteristics, because that happens too sometimes. People feel like a, a certain way of walking, a certain way of talking, a certain accent, you know, certain political or, or other beliefs are, are characteristic of enlightenment. They're not. They're characteristic of that guy's, you know, personal makeup. And enlightenment is far beyond that it's kind of stuff. It's not only a characteristic of the person's personal makeup, it's characteristic of their tribe. Right. And that's what we're talking about tonight, really. Because you know how everybody in the TM movement walks around with gestures and expressions like from that, our like that that are, are so indigenous of our tribe. Whereas when I'm around the Buddhist group, they have their yeah, own there's. particular characteristics and will go on and on, and the, you know, the Siddha Yoga people, and the Krishna people, and the, mm -hmm. whoever. Okay? And none of those things are characteristic of enlightenment per se, they're just... In they're characteristics of the tribe, yeah. and, and they're indigenous to the tribe. But the, to really grasp what it would be like to step out of your tribe completely, but it's more than that. What we're really talking about, in my opinion, what enlightenment really involves is stepping out of time. Mm -hmm. Okay? Now, what does that mean? It means that, that we have codes that bind us to a dimension. Mm -hmm. Like this, you know, we're in this room. Really enlightened beings live outside of that framework completely. They're, they're not in a linear time mechanism. And they, they literally have stepped out of time. So they're able to walk into your dimension just like you'd walk into Walmart, and then they can walk right out of your dimension because they're not bound by time. And, and so enlightenment really has to do with the mastery of time and space. Mm -hmm. 
from an internal perspective and, and also from an external perspective. And, and, and that expansion comes from actually uh, living, into, living in the fabric of the mechanics of time and space and studying it from the inside out as a research project. Hmm. And that is what real enlightenment looks like. So then you really do have mastery of time and space, and you can move and go where you need to go. And, and, and on top of that, your capacity to reach into the fabric of sentience itself and other beings that are sentient becomes infinite. So that one, if you could, in that state, you, you could be completely content to have one being sitting in front of you for the rest of eternity because there would be so much to learn and enjoy from that being. And the enjoyment and the pleasure of the learning is profoundly strong. Could you be completely content in solitary confinement, just exploring your own being and exploring whatever subtle knowledge there might be? Yes, but you don't hear from most sentient beings that by any means, and folks that I talk to anyway, that that's the game that they want to play. Right. It's, it's a completely different game than that. Yeah. Yes, could there be that contentment? Sure, because all of us that have some higher consciousness know how lovely it is to kind of bathe in that like a beautiful pool of silence or reality or knowing and there's a lot of pleasure in that but like I said when that divine presence awakens there is a questing to it and there's also a probing and a, and a drivenness to serve yeah, yeah. to serve to give back mm -hmm. you can't help it, it it's, it's just it, it's inherent in the game yeah. and, and even the people that are talking about complacency are still serving because you're talking about their state. <laughs> yeah, their they're, they're giving sad signs. Yeah, they're giving CDs. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so they're serving in some way. Mm -hmm. um, so so I, I do feel Yeah, it's that ironic. They're sitting up there saying, you don't need a teacher. Teachers are right. all fucked. They're being a teacher. Right, and they're serving and, and sharing. And what are they sharing? They're sharing happiness. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and they're sharing uh, a sense of, of satisfaction and a sense of being able to be stable for no reason, right. even if trauma is at your door. And that's a beautiful teaching, and, and it is real. But, but it can get plasticized to the point where it's inflexible. Mm -hmm. And then it doesn't allow for passion, right. and it doesn't allow for intensity, and it doesn't allow, perhaps, for growth. Mm -hmm. Good point. And, and growth really is infinite. It's like Jack and the Beanstalk. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a good myth. Yeah. You know, you, there's always another it's cloud. Like the there's always another place to go. Because it's, it is a big multiverse out there. And, there. and there's so much to learn and understand and to know. Mm -hmm. and, and so, by, by, by destroying that capacity, you're limiting human evolution rather than opening out to it. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that, that that's a mistake. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of evolved humans out there, never mind other species, but there's a lot of evolved humans out there. When you meet evolved humans, they're very beautiful. And why are they beautiful? Because they're radiating that inner light, and they're radiating a sense of patience. That's one of the things. You know, patience is a very high attribute. 
and and you realize your impatience when you're around really patient people, mm -hmm. and you know, and and so patience in higher dimensions is is a very high attribute because you're able to be deeply patient. It's like a, a parent with a child, yeah. you know, that you deeply love. You're very patient with your children. You're very patient with your disciples. You're very patient with, so if you're coming into this dimension, you're very patient with the intelligence that's here because you understand that it's just seeking to be more intelligent. Mm. Well, let me ask you, you've alluded a number of times to um, higher beings coming here and, and almost, it sounded like at one point you were talking about extraterrestrials yes. coming here and so on. What um, is the, ex and, and you've said that even since your you know, infancy practically, you were sort of in touch with these higher beings. Can you elaborate a little bit more on you know, specifically what that experience has been like for you, uh, both with regard to sort of interdimensional beings or, and or extraterrestrials? and you know, how they fit into the picture, what role you see them as playing in the world today, and in, in the transition that we're attempting to undergo, and so on. Well, I don't pretend to have all the answers to that. No, I'm not but, expecting but, but all my, of them. <laughs> but my perception is that human beings have had contact with other dimensional life going right back into the cave period. I mean, they're mm -hmm. cave drawings Drawings, of, yeah. of flying saucers and beings with different, you know, types of heads and so obviously this contact's been going on for a long time. And so we're at a tipping point now with it. The reason is because what I was saying that the, the problems that, that we've engendered here are so deeply intractable and we, we're kind of running around in circles. You know, we make a tiny bit of progress, then we're slammed back into something else, you know. One minute we're going to buy a hybrid car, the next minute we're buying a gas-guzzling car, the next minute, you know, we're going to get rid of our paper towels, and the next minute we're back to the paper towels. So we're kind of running around in a loop. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how are we going to get out of the loop? We're like in a maze that we can't get out of. Right. So I do feel that we're going to need help. Mm -hmm. And just like we get help from saints and beings on this dimension, that in my opinion are interdimensional anyway, when they really are yes, saints. They are. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. Um, you know, being like Maharishi was deeply interdimensional. Um, that, that, yes, we're going to need assistance. There's no shame in that. Mm -hmm. And we've been getting assistance for a long time anyway. A lot of the technologies that we have, we've been assisted to have them. But I think now there really is going to be a need for human beings to recognize their interwovenness with, with beings from other places. Well, what has been your experience with these beings? Well, it's kind of too big to discuss in an interview, but, but, but basically I've met lots and lots of mm -hmm. folks from different dimensions and I've been traveling around with them since I was a little kid. And in consciousness? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and, and... I mean, ever in concrete form? Like they come into your bedroom and they're yes, sitting in a chair talking yes, to you? Or that yes, yes, I've had that experience uh -huh. too. But not so much that, mostly internal, kind of night school experiences, right. uh, training, training, um, training about a lot of different kinds of things. Yeah. 
And um, a lot of the training is on the level of compassion. Like mm -hmm. I was saying to you, compassion is a big university. You could have a whole university devoted to compassion. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of training um, about the sciences and the workings of science and everything from biological level in the body to all different other types of sciences and, and then training in the arts and understanding the mechanics of how the arts function and aesthetics and we could go on. So do you feel that there's a whole sort of um, committee, so to speak, or assortment of higher beings who uh, kind of scan the earth as it were and find as many receptive people as possible and then train them as much as possible in order to infuse their knowledge or higher knowledge into humanity. I mean, and that this is kind of a critical um, aspect of our survival and our progress. Yeah, I, I think that's true, but I think it's more than that. I think that, that all of us that have some higher consciousness, or we're led to spiritual practice, or we're led mm -hmm. to higher levels of political service, or led to serving humanity in some way, that we are deeply rooted in other star systems, other dimensions, and we are simultaneously living in them while we're living here. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that it, it's not a they. It's, it's like the, the idea of consciousness anyway. You know, is there another person out there? You wow. know? Well, yeah, there is another person out there. But it's a both, you know. In other words, all of these beings that are really in higher states are living in what we would think of as unity consciousness to start with, okay? To start with. So when, when they see you, they really do see themselves. You see what I mean? They're, even if they looked completely different than you. Because sentience itself is an is a, is a, is a interdimensional notion, okay? So that experience of sentience is, is very, very powerful and shared. And by sentience you mean? Um, it's a, it's a, a, an experience of, of a field of intelligence, a palpable field of intelligent light, of intelligent uh, essence. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that is the beauty of what God has given us to share with other sentient beings, whether it's you know, a dog, a cat, a mouse, a grasshopper, or some other being from another place that you really can't imagine its net essence. Plus, every one of us has a subtle body, a light body, and basically this thing is, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's very little on the shelf, you know. It's here for a few years. When you're around a dead person, you see a dead body, it, it's very dead. But the, but the light force is what we all are, and all sentient beings have that light force, mm -hmm. every one of them. So we all share that. That's why you can commune in unity with another entity, mm -hmm. because we share the same birth, the same light force, the same essence that's mm -hmm. flowing with and through us, and, and we are immersed in that. And when you wake up to that, it's just become self-evident to you. And the only reason it's not self-evident is because it's natural to individuate. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing. There's nothing wrong with individuation. And, and higher beings are very highly individuated. They have very specific service that they're rendering, specific medicine, like Native American people would say. And that medicine has become highly cultivated in them. So when you're around them, it awakens that level of medicine in you. Mm -hmm. 
and, and it's, it's just a natural darshan that flows out of that being. They also tend to have <clears throat> very vibrant, uh, lively, distinctive personalities. You know, there's, there, it's not that the sort of abstract, universal, unmanifest <laughs> it's not that the personality takes on the qualities of abstract, uh, you know, universal and manifest. Quite the contrary, uh, you know, it's like a, a tree which is in a very fertile ground is going to flourish and be much more vibrant and green and full of fruit than than a tree which is in dry ground. And, and it, it seems that uh, you know people who are very deeply established in in the self or in pure awareness just have these real zingy personalities. You know, much more interesting, well, charming. They could, and they could be very shy and timid. That's true. You know, we yeah. don't really know. Maybe but, the ones that I've, you but, know, that, that the, are famous and well known. Yeah, tend because to have they those. have that charismatic right, quality, right, 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 which right. is what's made them famous. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, I think that 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 very deep, silent, eternal, internal essence that you feel in people in higher states is extraordinarily universal. Yes. And that's what's very interesting, because when you do meet beings from other dimensions, they emanate exactly the same thing, mm -hmm. okay? On the other hand, the intelligence field of these beings is extraordinarily highly developed. And so the rate of, of what we think of as thought, see, once you free thought, emancipate thought from the usual style of thinking, okay, that kind of limited, left-brainy, analytical stuff, mm -hmm. and you free thought up from that, and you dip it into the transcendent at a deep level, it goes fast. Right. It is very, very quick. It is so quick, it's, it's, it's just unbelievable mm -hmm. how quick it is. It's kind of like, you know, getting into a very fancy race car and driving and drive down the road in that way, and you're used to living in a horse and buggy. Right. And it's very fast, it cognizes vast amounts of information very quickly, and it's able to permeate anything. Mm. Physical objects. It can cognize you know, the internal mechanics of that camera just as easily as it can internally understand you. Mm. Okay? So, so it doesn't need an instruction manual. Mm. It's coming from within itself, the intelligence. And that's what grows. It's the just like I said, it's the intelligence becoming intelligent, and that capacity to see into things, and not only to see into things without feeling, but to see into things with feeling. Mm. See, this is the, the thing, that feeling is a huge, vast, colorful vocabulary, which any artist, writer, poet, or anyone would tell you. And higher intelligence can feel into anything, including inanimate objects. Mm -hmm. Everything has a feeling. Mm -hmm. You know, remember those stories in World War II of Native American people being able to fix all the machines because they were talking to them? Right. And people would say, oh, that's impossible. But they were doing it. Mm -hmm. They were doing it, okay? That, that, that feeling of being able to feel into both animate and inanimate objects, this is what that type of intelligence is able to, to discern. Mm -hmm. and, and within the context of that, is, is kind of an inner depth, silent chasm that is the foundation underneath the intelligence. And that's what this community has been plumbing for such a long time. Yeah. However, we don't want to miss the boat on this because the beginning is the silence and the intelligence and the, and mm -hmm. the, the transcendence and the depth and the profoundness that we 
lovely people here really emanate that. But it's the beginning of something. Right. It, it's it's the, the background Foundation. in the painting, right? Mm -hmm. but there's still a huge painting out there. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the reason I'm kind of on a soapbox about this is because I do see that in it coming back here, you know, just for a week, the, the huge potential of the people that we know. Mm. All of our friends, you know, our 30, 40 year meditator friends. However, I also see that complacency that I'm telling mm. you about, where there's a kind of giving up mm. and, and also a not a recognition of what actually has been received or yeah. achieved or known, which is what your mission is and what you've yeah. really been doing very beautifully. And, and that, that is so important. Because you, if you don't see yourself clearly, you can't see anybody else. Mm -hmm. And you can't feel or love anybody else. And that's the other thing, is that love is a very huge, vast, amazing vocabulary. And this planet has a huge amount of it. And, and it's, it's a very big asset that we have. But we also have the flip. We have hatred that goes with the love. Sure. Because they're polarities of each other. So as much as we have that incredible love, we also have incredible hatred too. And and so it's not a neutral ground, you know what I mean? You'll notice that I kind of uh, drifted away from the agenda of trying to get you to go through a timeline of your life because, you know, you start talking about things and I thought, well, this is her life, you know, this knowledge. And maybe it's not so significant that we go through a chronology of yeah. well, uh, events, you know. For me, I mean... I've had a few really pivotal events, right. and uh, some of them have not been pleasant events, mm -hmm. and very traumatic events, honestly. So, but I've kind of discussed them. I, I know what they are. I mean, you can go back and look at them. If you feel it. But, I mean, I, I, but it's not you know, a that's not path really the formula main that point. we need to stick to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know that. I don't know how relevant that is for me. Because I think for me, mostly my journey or what I really need to do is to become competent as a human being mm -hmm. and, and to feel safe, protected, loved, mm -hmm. cherished, and, and understand uh, uh, my own value without having to defend against some kind of, of, of internalized uh, oppression. And, and I think that that's kind of what my real journey is all about. Internalized oppression or oppression from others? Well, it's internalized from others. If you internalize it, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. And, and, and learning how to stay on the self and mm -hmm. be, be a compassionate witness to all of that yeah. is, is very much part of my journey because I'm so darn sensitive to all mm -hmm. that. And, and, and that sensitivity limits... Uh, my uh, happiness and my stability. Yeah. And and I, I know that that's what I've got to continue to work on. And do I see big changes in that? Yes. Is it a lot better? Yes. But then, you know, something will happen and I realize, whoa, you know, it's not as better as I thought, you know? So, I had the opportunity to meet President Obama last spring, face-to-face uh, uh, -face and shake his hand. And uh -huh. uh, This is Iowa, so we meet the politicians pretty easily and it was like the third time I'd seen him. But, I, uh, you know, I, to me, he's a very bright light and a very yeah. bright being. Yeah. But the, what I said to him, I, I said, you know, I said, we love you. I said, don't let the turkeys get you down. Uh -huh. And he said, there's a lot of them out there. They just keep on gobbling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of reminded of that when you said, you know, the impact that 
skeptics or, or hard knots of ignorance have on, on your own life and, and yeah. the need to sort of stand strong and, and not let that, um, you know, get you down. Yeah, and he's a really good example of that because he was able to stand up for himself and in a huge field talk about skepticism, really hatred, yeah, and, and maintain that presence that we're discussing. And, and uh, I think that's a very beautiful thing. And you know what? Uh, because he has truly African roots, and because when you meet really stately African beings, African people, like Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu. Right. And, and see, in my little journey of life, not only do I go around visiting other, you know, sort of exotic places off-planet, but I do a lot of visiting on-planet, you know. So I do go to other countries and visit villages and meet very beautiful beings here. And African people are very amazing. And, and very untapped resource on our earth, mm. and very devalued, very devalued, very oppressed. and very oppressed. However, when you meet African people, there's a tremendous happiness that exudes from most of these people Sweetness. that is just overwhelming. Mm. And, and you really begin to understand that you can have happiness for no reason. Yeah. But not only that, but the true magical uh, uh, consciousness that exists in indigenous societies, uh, there's still a lot of it there. Mm -hmm. and, and it's been very diminished by, you know, Western culture, which is just starting to awaken to the, to the you know, the goodness of all that and the power of all that. Um, so, you know, that's another reason to have a good awakening, is that you get to travel, you get a ticket, mm -hmm. you know? You can you can buy you have an internal visa, and and assuming you have permission, you can enter into the consciousness of anything, hmm. and and this is the great gift of cognition, is that you can enter into the consciousness of anything, a star, a planet, a person, a bee, a bug, a rodent, a something, you know, beings from other places. You can enter into the consciousness of anything because your consciousness becomes completely permeable and, and you're not able even to hold up those boundaries anymore. Yeah. And so when the boundaries come down, you have this tremendous permeability that you have to manage, ideally, by integrating that you know, mm -hmm. psychologically and energetically. But it is a tremendous gift to be able to fathom like that. And to let yourself be fathomed, that's the other thing. To let yourself be fathomed by a dog, a cat, a cow, a horse, a being, whatever. To let yourself be fathomed by that and be permeated by that. I mean, that's what you learn making love with another human being. And that's essentially what the whole deal is about, is love. Mm -hmm. And letting love cut you open mm -hmm. and bleed you so that you can feel at the depth, if that's possible, that God needs us to be able to have. On that note, um, you know, you've talked about what you do professionally, uh, you know, and meeting with people and sort of, and you, you told that story about the guy in Cambridge or in, in that healing center in Boston. Where, uh, and, you know, you've been sitting with me now for an hour and a half a foot away. Uh, what would, you know, 
do me. I mean, have a, if you feel like it, uh, what would you say? But, uh, you know, looking into me, or that I would feel comfortable having to go out on YouTube. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying this out of any sort of skepticism. I'm no, saying it as a way of illustrating uh, what you've been talking about. Well, you have a very beautiful heart, for starters, and 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 you really deeply care, and that's a very rare thing because it's hard to care. It's hard to maintain caring and not have it be hurt by all the slings and arrows that come in a lifetime. So, you, you know, you've done enough work spiritually, emotionally, that, that your, your caring is, is, is very profound. And, and you have very high levels of integrity in your energy field. The markings of integrity are very high which means that you have a very good BSBM barometer. You, you really, really want and appreciate authenticity in other people. And, um, and, and it's a quest for you to, to really keep plumbing the depths of authenticity, to, to learn and to understand what's true and what's real, and to, to, to discern that. And, um, and, and I think that uh, you have a lot of industriousness in you. You're not a lazy person. Now, I knew you were going to say... I knew Depends on were, whether I'm doing something I enjoy or not. I, I was about to tell you this, yeah. okay? I knew you were going to shake your head when I said that, but I'm purposely telling you this, that, that you know, there's all different kinds of industriousness, and, and it's really important for you to do the things that you love right. and, and, and to be dedicated mm -hmm. to that. Because um, time is short, and none of us are going to live forever, and 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 really focusing on the things that mean a lot to you is not only going to bring happiness to you, but it's going to bring happiness and insight to a tremendous amount of other people. And so, staying in your dharma right now, I think, is really crucial for you personally. Um, and, and, and honestly, uh, the other thing I feel is that try to, to go out and travel internationally. Mm. Look for opportunities that will take you outside of the United States and, and, and have you meet other people who are interested in expanding uh, the capacities of the media to assert consciousness-based understanding and, and recognition. And there's a lot of other folks out there on that quest. It, it's really important for you to meet them and not become too insular. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that that if you do that, then uh, the next 10 or 15 years of your life can be very, very, very rich for you. Mm. And, um, and my personal feeling is that... Um, you know, you're, you're someone who can live a long time. So you have plenty of time. How old are you? 61. Yeah, you have a long time yet to be here. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you're, if you're focused with your dharma, you should be able to be here at least another 30 years. Right. Um, so my, my sense about that is, is uh, that's a grace. You know, mm -hmm. not everybody has that capacity for whatever reasons that we don't understand. Um, and uh, it's, it's really important for you to, to feel that, that 
that that whole period is going to be meaningful. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's those are a few things I would yeah. say to you. Well, that's an important issue. I mean, I spent 25 years in the TM movement and did a lot of international traveling and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, you know, I think it left me with huge gaps in my understanding and experience of practical life, and uh, you know responsibility and stuff like that. So then, I, then I, I got married and went, I've been in a phase of earning a living and paying off a mortgage and, and stuff like that, which had been totally neglected uh, during my TM years. And uh, you know, now I'm sort of feeling like, well, perhaps this show will evolve into a new phase for me uh, because it's something I enjoy so much and I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And you know, it doesn't pay the bills. But um, perhaps a transition will, will be possible and opportunities will, will arise um, where it could, you know, I could segue into something along these lines. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I think you're really good at it. And I think that, um, first of all, I think that we're, we're in a big phase transition with technology, which I'm sure I don't have to tell you. And, um, you know, so there'll be opportunities in that direction. Mm -hmm. I was just talking to someone in this community just a few days ago about, you know, the development of hologrammatic technology and the ability to really have someone materialize in your room, literally, through technology. Mm -hmm. And I think that, see, I think that, that the technologies themselves are going to be able to bring people experiences of higher states. Mm -hmm. That's why Avatars was such a great success. Mm -hmm. yeah is because it actually brought an experience of higher states to people in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that, first of all, I think that, do you, are, are you writing? Are, are you writing? Not so much. I'm a fairly good writer, but a slow writer. Mm -hmm. if, I mean, I can spend an hour on a paragraph just tweaking it and getting it right. I'm, I'm better sort of on my toes speaking and, 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 and actually, so I, that's what you need to do. Yeah, and I like asking questions. Um, right. Because I went through a phase for many years of talking about stuff which I wasn't fully living and, uh, you know, just kind of parroting other people's words. Yeah. And so it's very important for me to not do that and, mm -hmm. you know, to mm -hmm. sort of be genuine and authentic. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, since I don't feel like I know a whole lot, uh, it I, I feel good drawing other people's knowledge out of them and, uh, and being able to share that with a larger audience. Well, that's beautiful. At this stage, anyway. That's beautiful. However, you do know a lot. I get my two cents in every day. <laughs> no, 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 no. You do know a lot. And I think that, that you know, sometimes we don't know what we know mm -hmm. until we have to share it with, yeah. with others. And, and, and I think it's important for you to know what you know. Okay, for your own development, which is what you're asking me, and and I think if, it, if it's going to come through verbal output, you know, it can be transcribed. Other people can listen to it, but I think coming to terms with what you feel about consciousness and what you know and what you experience mm -hmm. uh, is really important for you because otherwise, remember when I was saying about, and you mentioned the word authenticity too. You're not going to feel completely authentic as a human being unless that comes forward for you. Mm -hmm. And that's and just from an energetic level, it's because your throat chakra is, is very turned on right now. There's a, there's a lot of movement in the chakra, mm -hmm. which, which is indicating to me, the way I interpret that, 
is that it's very important for you to articulate your own heart, your yeah. own voice, your own understanding. And, and that's going to be crucial for your evolution. Um, so then, when you come into these interviews, there, there will be a different quality to it. Because you're, you'll be relaxed in that knowing a little bit more. Mm -hmm. and, and that will also bring out a whole other kind of knowing in the other person. It, it, it will relax them. Yeah. It'll be, you know what I mean? It, mm -hmm. it will cause them to, it's like a, a sigh will come from some deep part of them. Because they, they will experience who you are and, and they'll feel you know that. You see mm -hmm. what I mean? And that knowing, that Rishi value, that knower will also pop out from the other person so it will enrich it. it. It's like I've had a couple of instances of being able to talk to people that I believe are very, very advanced on this plane now we're talking about. And that's always what you feel. So that, that, that relaxed knowing in them that, that's very stretched open and, and very deep causes you to feel very relaxed yeah. and very comfortable with yourself. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the potentiality that you have here, is to, is to engender that in other people. Mm -hmm. And also consider children. In what remember, respect? remember Art Linkletter? Sure. How I used kids to talk say the darndest things. I'd love for you to do a show like this with psychic kids huh. and let them say the darndest things. That's an interesting idea. I'll have to find some. Well, I can give you some pointers. Okay, yeah. That would be fun. That would be really fun. <laughs> I, I, because I think you're really good with kids mm -hmm. and I think you could help them feel relaxed and play with them, and yeah. a lot of things could come out from that that are very crucial for right now. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's a good idea. Let's pursue that. <laughs> that got a twinkle in there. Yeah, mind. I like that idea a lot. I uh, hadn't even thought of it. Oh, beautiful. Huh. Yeah. So, um, do, do you feel like um, there's anything that you really would like to say that we haven't touched upon or that I haven't thought to ask you about? I don't think we've talked enough about love, but okay. it's probably a whole other interview. Yeah. You know, because, well, next time you come back because, to the Because to me, that really is the essence of what higher consciousness is all about. Mm -hmm. You know, the realization piece and the understanding of the non-separatist self and the you know, non-dual self and all the good things that you know, these shows tend to talk about are really good. But love is where it's at. Mm -hmm. because. It's, it's diving into the flavors and fabric and essence of the heart and, and being able to experience the heart at deeper and deeper plateaus of love and, and awakeness in the heart, I think is really uh, what consciousness wants to do once it grows up. Hmm. It, it, it has to come into that unity, it's true, first, and in, in a sense it's a somewhat mental process mm -hmm. but then it has to drop into the heart yeah and and that burning away of all the seeds of, of discord hatred bias uh, and and uh, you know those kinds of enemies as Karuna Mani would call it is, is a, an infinite process and it leads to deeper and deeper self-reflection on the nature of love and and the intensity of, of, of um, expressing and, and uh, caring for oneself mm -hmm. as well as others. And I, I think that is a very beautiful topic to, to consider. Yeah. It actually was the way Marshi kind of outlined the stages of progress. He used to talk about 
the necessity to first, you know, establish self-realization, and then once that had been established, then the capacity to really appreciate would begin to grow much more. Once you knew who you were, you could begin to know what everything else was, and yes. then that that capacity would grow. And then, you know, then the heart would really begin to develop on that foundation and love would really become a, a significant, you know, st stage of one's growth, unfolding love. So that's kind of just the way you, you know, referred to it really, that, that, that sequence of getting deeply established in, in pure awareness and then, you didn't quite use that term, but then having love be the priority and, and have that blossom. Well, I think it can work in the reverse. I think that you can be challenged in life on the level of love mm -hmm. and it opens you into pure awareness. Mm -hmm. So it, it can go either way. Yeah. You know? I mean you need people who have had tremendous challenges in their life and, and, and it has opened them into extremely deep capacities to accept and to be awake into love. Mm -hmm. And 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 so that's why I said I don't think you can have rules when it comes to consciousness yeah. because it's a kind of non-structured situation. Um, but I do think that that the whole study of love and understanding what that really means um, is is really important. Hmm. And how would a person um, pursue that if they took your your words to heart? What would they do? What should they do? Well, there are a lot of processes that awaken the subtle bodies. Mm -hmm. Techniques, and, Yes, and okay. that awaken the capacity of the heart mm -hmm. to, to explore the, the, the depth and the, the dimensionality of the, of the energy system and of the heart itself. Mm -hmm. and, and it's a big world in there, and, and it's a yoga in itself. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opening into the, to the wholeness of the fabric of the heart, and, and, and different types of breath that, that, that emanate from the heart. That, and love is very interconnected with those very subtle levels of breath that, that exists in the heart. You're literally breathing love. You're literally uh, opening into a fabric of, of caring. That, and not only caring for, but being cared for. And, and that's one of the things that I think is so hard for human beings. It's much easier for us to care for than to allow us to be cared for. You yeah. see what I mean? And, and to, to have, give yourself permission to open into another person's caring and another person's recognition of you. Mm. The receiving part is probably the hardest enlightenment step, in my opinion really being able to receive at the depth that's possible. And, and Is that because it necessitates vulnerability? Yes. Yeah. It necessitates profound vulnerability. And, and that vulnerability comes from not having the walls that we're talking about right, in the mind. Right, you were mentioning oh, earlier. Right. Yeah. When the walls come down, there's a naked vulnerability that's quite scary. Mm -hmm. And, and it's, it, it can shake you right to your core. Yeah. And it does shake you right to your core. You're like, holy, you know what? Here I am, totally exposed to everything. Mm -hmm. and, and, but then, from that place, you start building a, a different type of protection 
that, that is a deeply vulnerable but protected space, mm. a sheltered protection, a refuge, like the Buddhist people will say. Mm. You know, you find refuge in, in the home of the heart. And uh, that is, a, 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 you know, in my world, you know, it is the quest. Yeah. It is the quest. That is the quest. And, and it's, 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 uh, it's an endless thing. It's interesting, um, I, in a previous interview I was talking with somebody about um, certainty and uncertainty and we were talking about how um, people try to achieve security through certainty, you know, being sort of adamantly sure of themselves on particular mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, points, but it's really a very vulnerable position, a very uncertain position because you can't have that, uh, genuinely can't have uh, that sort of certainty, uh, it's easily cracked and it's easily refuted or contradicted by a million other perspectives. And um, on this point of love, I see a, sim a, a similar uh, state where, where we, we attempt to achieve a sort of security by having those walls around us, but in a sense it's, it leaves us more vulnerable. Uh, it, uh, it leaves us less secure because those walls can always be under assault, you know, can always be threatened. Um, with crumbling or with cracking, and uh, if they can somehow be let down, and one can reside in that state of vulnerability, then there's everything can pass through you, so to speak. There's nothing which can. There's no. There are no walls to break anymore. Well, I think that's what we're really talking about, and and that that transparency of being, okay, opens more and more deeply so that things really do pass through you, and as they pass through, you feel them. Mm. But on the other hand, because you are more um, stabilized in what we would think of as the self, you, you're experiencing the things passing through you and the self simultaneously. And, and the beauty is that the deeper those things pass through you, the more the self feels strong. Mm -hmm. it, it's a funny it's paradoxical, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you start to realize that if the walls come down, you're not only going to be safe, but you're going to have a tremendous amount of pleasure in just living. Mm -hmm. Just living. You know, nothing exotic, no fancy stuff. This is where the simplicity comes in. Mm -hmm. Because just living, the, the pleasure of being permeated and allowing yourself to, to permeate another person and, and having the permission for that, uh, creates a tremendous amount of pleasure in the body, in the psyche, in the mm. heart, and and uh, it's it's very rich. Yeah. It's very very rich, yeah. and and if people could really have that experience and be able to to feel that, um, you know, it would be very life altering for people, mm. and and finding ways and technologies that would that really would give people the experience that I'm trying to describe with that permeability and vulnerability in the shelter of the self would be a huge service. Yeah. And, and I do think that the media, uh, you know, the different new media has a lot of potential to offer that to people, to yeah. illustrate that to people in, in a variety of ways. And, and, and it would be very changing for people because that fearful, contracted stuff that all of us have in our heart, um, it, it, it falls away 
when when the heart finally gets to a certain degree of permeability. In, in my work, we call it cuts and sweeps. The heart gets cut open. It, it literally is cut open. Back literally. to front, side to side. Yeah, well... Maybe not literally. Literally <laughs> in a subtle level, right. And yeah. then you go take a, a knife right. and do skewer anybody. But, but those cuts open up different planes or fields of the heart chakra. Hmm. And, and, and that's where multidimensional consciousness actually is engendered. It's not up here. It's in here. Hmm. And, and it, it's a felt sense of, of sentience from the level of the heart. And Buddhist people call it heart-mind, which hmm. I love a lot. It's the, yeah. you know, the continuity of cognition and heart. Hmm. Um. You've alluded to your work, and I know you have all sorts of teachings and courses, and you do consultations and everything, and I feel like we couldn't really do justice to that right now. I mean, we could probably take another hour talking about it, but uh, you know, we probably shouldn't go that long. But I think perhaps the simplest thing would be to, um, <clears throat> you know, when I put up this interview on, on the website, uh, there'll be a a biography, a short bio of you, and then, uh, you know, website links and, and things like that, so people can contact you and really learn about in detail about what you have to offer and teach. Right? Yeah, that'd be beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, that's probably the best way of going about it. And you do, I mean, this is your f teaching of some kind and helping people in, in certain ways is really your full-time dedication, your full-time profession, right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are courses people can take, individual consultations, and things like that, right? Yeah. 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 And not only, they don't have to come someplace to do it, it can be done by phone or by internet sure. or by whatever. Sure, yeah, all yeah. the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And do you also have gatherings in, in certain locations? Where yes. A course or a retreat or whatever? Yes, yes. And, okay. and part of my work, too, is really music. Oh. With piano? Uh, yeah, I'm a musician. Yeah. So before we end this interview, I think I should sing. Oh, great. Yeah. You ready for I'm that? ready. Okay.
interesting. <laughs> that was great. I love that. <laughs> Completely unexpected. <laughs> and it, it sort of reminded me a little bit of some of those Tibetan things with the different tones going on and, and everything. Well, that's great. Do you have actually a CD or anything where people where you do a lot of that that people could some listen to? I, I, the, I, I have a CD, but it doesn't have as much of this kind of singing on it. Ah. But this is what I really do with people. Wow. Because it, it opens yeah. the chakras. System. That's fascinating. Fabulous. Yeah. Uh, and it, obviously, I've never heard anything like it. It was something you've completely, it's completely original with you, right? I mean, something you've just... It's something I've developed over a whole lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Very interesting. Well, I think it would sort of diminish the whole experience to talk too much more after that. Um, so, I'd like to, you know, thank you very much for uh, this opportunity. It took us a bit to get this scheduled because you're so busy and I have my work schedule and everything, but I'm really glad we were able to make it happen. And, um, you know, we can get together again periodically when, when you come into town see how things are progressing for both of us. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you. So I, I've been speaking with Janet Sussman. Um, my name is Rick Archer and the, you've been watching a little interview series which I call Buddha at the Gas Pump. Um, there are a number of ways of watching and listening to this. A podcast, YouTube, Facebook, uh, but the, the one place you can come to kind of branch out to all those things is uh, batgap.com which is an acronym for Buddha at the Gas Pump. That's B-A-T-G-A-P.com and you'll see all the interviews I've done so far archived there and all the ones I will continue to do. Um, you can get on a mailing list to be notified. You can sign up for an RSS feed because it's actually a blog. So there's all kind, of, and I'm I'm keep sort of coming up with new ways of unfolding it and propagating it um, as time goes on. Uh, I also regularly receive emails from people um, saying suggesting that I interview this, that, or the other person. So if you have someone in mind, or you are someone who you would like me to interview, uh, I do a lot of interviews over, over the internet via Skype, we can do that. So thank you for listening or watching and we will see you next week.